Is anybody still watching the news these days? Well, I can tell some of you are. <laughs> You're just made by what you see in uh, current world affairs and the economy. Maybe you're witnessing incompetence in our own government. There are divisions not only in our government, but also in our society as a whole. Our world is nuts and getting nuttier, I think. Can you remember a time when things were this bad? How about the 60s and the 70s? Assassinations? Race riots, war in Vietnam, trouble in the Middle East, Watergate, gasoline wars, tensions with Russia, threats from Iran, Beatlemania, <laughs> followed by a variety of hippie movements, followed by disco. You sure you've not seen our country go nuts before? In a world where things come unhinged as quickly as they do, what are we to do? Well, we have some clues in our passage this morning, and the first clue comes from the first line. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. On the first day of the week, we gathered together to break bread. This is one of the New Testament's earliest definite references to weekly Sunday worship, a time when they came for not only a communal meal, but they broke bread. That's a, that's a term for having and celebrating the Lord's Supper, a time of listening to Scripture being taught, a time for prayer, for worship. We take that for granted, don't we? We take it for granted that Christians meet on Sunday. In fact, it was once so much a part of our culture that just 35 years ago or so, all businesses uh, and all business was suspended on this day. There once was a time when Sunday was different from all of the other days of the week. By the mid-80s, almost all of the states had repealed or were in the process of repealing their respective blue laws. I want you to think about that. A generation has come of age and brought forth another generation in a culture that has not distinguished Sunday from any other day. Have we forgotten also? Have we forgotten that the Lord's day is different? Have we forgotten what it was like when the cadence of our towns and our cities and our families had to move to the rhythms set by the blue laws. Now sure, some of us may remember those times when we really needed something like sugar or eggs or a bag of nails and we just simply had to wait until Monday. Or we might remember that everything came to a virtual standstill. Families could count on being together. Everyone could count on a day of rest and worship. In fact, the only places that were open were the churches. Our culture has no room for rest or Christian worship, but we didn't have to follow the rhythm of our culture, did we? And I think in part we have. I wonder how much we've actually gained by participating in Sunday is just like every other day 
kind of living? How much have we lost? Now, there are some who still maintain a Sabbath approach to Sunday based on Christian distinctives, Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby, a few other businesses, local and national. But before we point fingers at the repealing of blue laws for the state the church is in and maybe even our nation, let me tell you this. There is no significant difference in church attendance among those claiming to be Christian now than there was before the laws were repealed. But in these early days of the church, that we're reading here in Acts, Acts 20 and so on, it was a significantly different day. The teaching that had to be passed down, the teaching that was passed down to these early Christians from their, from their Jewish heritage, this teaching of remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, it had moved from the last day of the week to the first day of the week because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, this new life in Christ, changed even the weekly day of rest and worship. Now, it's true, Acts chapter 2, it states that the very first Christians met daily in the temple. But this was true only of the church in Jerusalem. Gentile Christians who became believers in far-flung cities of the Roman Empire, like this church we're reading about in Troas, where Paul is preaching, it would not have had the rhythm of daily temple life found in Jerusalem. They would have met in the synagogue and would have adopted the Sabbath rhythm of meeting together weekly. And as the Lord's Day of Resurrection is paramount for our faith, they met on the first day of the week rather than the last day, and they met regularly. And so the author of Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews, instructs his hearers to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That is, do not neglect it or exchange it for something else. This assembly has eternal efficacy. This gathering is very important. Because it is the assembling of ourselves together that gives us our identity as followers of Jesus. This regular gathering for worship and the breaking of bread, coming to the Lord's table, it reminds us of who we are and whose we are and what we're supposed to be doing. This gathering regularly together, it reforms the body of Christ so that we can receive nourishment and encouragement to overcome the assimilating pressures from outside. This gathering gives us a weekly rhythm of renewal that reminds us of our identity as God's people. And that's what the author of Hebrews was getting at when he encourages us to maintain our regular gathering time and not neglect it. Listen as I read it in full. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, how is it that we stir one another up to love and good works and encourage one another in the faith, even and especially as we see the world around us unravel and fall to pieces by being faithful to this gathering, making this gathering together a priority, making this gathering the metronome that sets the cadence for the rest of the week. Because while we are praising God and exploring His ways 
in our worship. Something happens to us and through us. The ministry of encouragement. Now make no mistake, there's absolutely no need for a regular meeting like this one for a group of people who are comfortable and quite at home in this world. That church, if it could even be called a church, would have absolutely no need for encouragement. Those who live by the standards set by our culture need no encouragement to continue to do so. But you know, if you choose to live your life by the standards set by our Lord, you will need encouragement. If this were not so, Jesus would not have had to encourage us himself by saying, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this gathering, this meeting of believers together for worship and encouragement is what the New Testament calls koinonia. Strictly speaking, it is simply translated fellowship. But as with most words, there is something deeper that is being communicated by koinonia. The depth of the word koinonia is that it not only means fellowship, it means doing life together. Doing life together. This is why the first church in Jerusalem, which met daily and shared their resources with each other, could be described as having achieved koinonia. And that life together was so counter to their culture around them that they could not be ignored. They either, people around them either joined them or persecuted them, but they could not shrug their shoulders and say that that gathering, those people, that church were irrelevant. How about today? How about the church in America today? Well, Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners, a Christian community based in Washington, D.C., that Sojourners advocates for peace and justice, Jim Wallace said this, The greatest need in our time is not simply for the preaching of the gospel, nor for service on behalf of justice, nor for the experience of the Spirit's gifts, nor even for the prophetic challenging of the king. The greatest need in our time is for koinonia, the call simply to be the church, to love one another, and to offer our lives for the sake of the world. The creation of living, breathing, loving communities of faith at the local church level is the foundation for all of the other answers. The community of faith incarnates and embodies and fleshes out a whole new order It offers a visible and concrete alternative, and it issues a basic challenge to the world as it is. The church must be called to be the church, to rebuild the kind of community that gives substance to the claims of our faith. Jim Wallace wrote that in 1982. 1982, if it were true then, how much more is it true now? What he is saying is essentially that when the church is truly a community of faith that embodies koinonia, that all of the other things would naturally flow out of and from its fellowship, the preaching of the gospel, service to our community, the experience and multiplication of the Spirit's gifts, and even the prophetic challenging of the status quo. But when people of faith neglect meeting together, koinonia has no chance of developing And the church gives the world around it absolutely zero proof to the claims of our faith. 
when we claim to have a new life and then live by the same rhythms and point our lives toward the same goals as those who do not, our message has a hollow ring and becomes irrelevant. But something else happened during this meeting that we're reading about in Troas. Uh, let's keep reading. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I like that phrase, not a little comforted. These Christians were not neglecting their meeting together. Such gatherings were far too important for them to miss. Yet on this day, the guest preacher was a bit long-winded. <clears throat> I've got some time, don't I, right? Well, Luke tells us that Paul prolonged his speech until midnight. And the Greek there, basically the gist of that Greek there is that Paul went on and on and on. Many of those there had already spent a long day working in the hot sun, and now they are sitting in a third floor room at midnight listening to Paul go on and on. And to make matters worse, Luke tells us that there were many lamps in that upper room where they were meeting. You can just imagine that these oil-burning lamps would only add to the stuffiness of that place. And poor Eutychus, whose tribe would increase through the ages, you'll get that in a minute, falling asleep during a sermon. <laughs> Though he was probably sitting in the most ventilated place in the whole room, he eventually succumbs to drowsiness and falls asleep. Now, for most of us, falling asleep during the sermon or even dozing a little isn't much of a problem, <laughs> aside from perhaps slight embarrassment at being noticed when our head bobs, <laughs> or getting that sharp elbow from our spouse, from our wife. <laughs> no one ever gets hurt, right? No one really gets hurt. But Eutychus was sitting in the window, and when he fell asleep, he fell out of the window three floors to the ground below. Luke tells us that he was taken up dead. Life can hit us like that, can it? Tragedy tends to come upon us like that. Suddenly, suddenly and without warning, the world can unravel, rendering us speechless and in shock. But you know, this is exactly where the koinonia of Christian fellowship wields its power and displays the life of God. At the beginning, there was only life and fellowship with God in a paradise known as Eden. And then we sinned against God, choosing our own way over God's way. And that's when tragedy and death entered the picture. 
God's way has always been about life, the meaning and the purpose of life, the way of and to life. And we could have had it forever in the garden if only we had chosen the tree of life back then rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen, the koinonia that Jim Wallace referred to, that whole new order that challenges the world as it is and gives an alternative to the world's way life should be lived, it happens when the church is being the church rather than simply a social gathering. In fact, when a church is being the church, it broadcasts God's very own warning that all of the other ways lead to death. And it demonstrates the truth of that. Essentially, koinonia is where life happens. It is the only place on earth where true, abundant, everlasting life happens because it is only among his people that God's life can be experienced. And so Paul went down, bent over the young man, embraced him, and said to the shocked and grieving congregation, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. That's the alternative reality that true fellowship demonstrates. And doesn't our community, doesn't our country and our world need to see God's people at peace and unflappable in the midst of a world gone mad? Do they not need to see us living out Paul's command? Do not be alarmed. Because of the resurrection, where we expect the embrace of death, we encounter the embrace of life. And if you think about it, Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of all of it. We worship together on Sunday because it is the day that Jesus was raised. Meeting together regularly on the Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection, a celebration of true, abundant, meaningful, everlasting life, a regular time of encouragement and remembrance that when Jesus rose from the dead, death itself was conquered and the way of life was opened up for everyone. And now we're told that after Eutychus was raised back to life, that Paul went back upstairs, ate with everyone, talked with them until daybreak before going on his way, and that they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were greatly comforted. Regularly meeting together, taking our faith seriously enough to devote ourselves to understanding it, living its principles out there, Every day, giving of ourselves to this community of faith is a comfort and an encouragement that says and assures and demonstrates, do not be alarmed. These words and acts of life, they rehabilitate the church. They bring it back to life and transform the church from a fearful band of people huddled together behind closed doors to a confident band of believers able to confront the world and its cozy little arrangement with death. What would our churches look like if everyone who claimed to be a Christian were in church on Sunday morning, celebrating the Lord's Day, encouraging one another on in the way of life? What would our community look like if those same people now, regularly participating in gatherings like this one, took their faith seriously enough to live it outside of the church building. I think Jim Wallace is right 
And Scripture points to the same truth. Where you find true fellowship, where you find koinonia, you find that it naturally and powerfully follows that the gospel is preached. Service to the community on behalf of justice takes place. The experience and multiplication of the Spirit's gifts are enjoyed, and even the prophetic challenging of the world's status quo is boldly proclaimed. Through genuine fellowship, this new life in Jesus that we claim to believe is so vividly demonstrated that people will be forced to make a decision to either join us or persecute us. But no one would ever be able to simply shrug their shoulders and say, what's it matter? That way is irrelevant. Scripture bears witness that true fellowship has real power because it has God's very life in it. A church with his life in it can be ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, but it cannot be ignored. Now sure, Paul's sermon was long. But what more could a church ask for of its time together, its time together for worship and encouragement, than to return into the world on Monday morning, fully alive and not a little comforted, greatly comforted. And so in closing, let me leave you this benediction to encourage you to remain faithful to this community, to this fellowship. Be faithful to this gathering. The world will rage and come unhinged. That's the nature of this world. But do not be alarmed by what you see and hear. Be unflappable in your confidence as to whom you belong. Give our community a picture of true koinonia. Show them the life of our Savior, Jesus the Christ, through our very fellowship, loving and serving one another. And as you do, be greatly comforted. Be greatly comforted. Amen? Amen. Can we do that? Can you think of the person who used to be to your right and left and invite them to join you next Sunday, that we might live into God's ideal of true fellowship, that we might live into his life and pour out this life of peace and joy and unflappability to those around us who are running around like Chicken Little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Paul says, do not be alarmed. His life is in you. Amen? Amen.